Hey, science nerds. Welcome back to another episode of MRSA Podcasts, where we explore research in various science disciplines at McMaster University to try and bridge the gap between Canada's most research-intensive university and the new generation of science leaders it's fostering. My name is Mira, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jonathan. Um, today, we're joined by Dr. Catherine Bujold, an assistant professor in the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology here at McMaster. So Dr. Bujold joined McMaster in the summer of 2020 after a postdoctoral fellowship at Northwestern University, where she studied DNA oligonucleotides and their mobilization for cellular delivery. Prior to this, she completed her PhD at McGill University, where she also researched the applications of DNA nanostructures for drug delivery. Um, today, her lab continues to study spherical nucleic acids and other DNA nanostructures, and how they can be used for tissue-specific drug and gene therapies for a wide range of diseases. Um, so, hi, Dr. Bujold. Um, we're so happy you were able to find the time to talk to us today. And we want to start things off by uh, getting to know you a bit better. So would you be able to share a little bit about your journey to uh, research and what specific, what your specific research interests are, how you ended up as a PI here at Mac? Hi, uh, thank you for inviting me. And a great question, I guess, to start off. Probably a slightly long-winded answer, so let me know if I go too long. Um, yeah, so I'm originally from Quebec. I'm probably a French-speaking uh, person, so that might be new to a few of you. Uh, I initially decided to go into chemistry um, from uh, the interest I had in my CEGEP, which is a type of college education in Quebec, and this power that it gave over um, molecular structure to start asking questions and answer them directly. So I thought there was a nice creative aspect to chemistry in addition to providing you a little bit of like the kind of a cooking experience, right? You make a molecule and then you get to study it um, on your own terms. So I thought that was very powerful and that motivated me to uh, study in this field. Uh, I went to McGill because it was like a great institution close to me and it allowed me to perfect my English. So that was kind of a double challenge that I found really engaging. And um, once there during my undergrad, and I think that's probably similar to many of you, I did the equivalent of a thesis project with Professor Slayman, who ended up becoming my uh, PhD supervisor. Um, I think prior <laughs> to um, um, doing my thesis project, I had no idea of what doing a PhD would entail, but I was just incredibly motivated by the work I had been doing. And um, this introduction also to what life would look like as a, a research scientist. And I think that was, in my opinion, like a very strong motivator to continue in that direction. Uh, for those of you who are looking into career options, I think difference between the PhD and master's to all of you usually sounds like number of years. Uh, but what this translates to, I think in the long run, masters allows you to get great technical proficiency in like uh, top-notch fields. I think PhD further develops, I think, this idea of like leadership, proposing ideas, implementing ways to get to where you want to be. So I was really associating uh, with that in addition to the technical skills, pursued my PhD and had a great experience. Uh, my focus in those days were on uh, DNA nanostructures, as you said, uh, for drug delivery, the field was very young. So in my case, I was mentored by a first generation of students who are starting to explore the DNA base-bearing alphabet to kind of grow predictively uh, nanoscale structures. And we began envisaging the idea of using them for biology because DNA is already biocompatible. 
it has this programmable alphabet that allows you to bring in place drugs that would uh, be useful. You can tailor like the number of drugs you bring in. You can add targeting agents that will select for one cell type or another. And that really uh, vibed with me and I really wanted to focus on these uh, questions a lot more. And we also had in the days, the first few examples showing that DNA-based structures were able to get into cells. I mean, today, I think for those of you interested in the field, it's kind of obvious, but in the days that was very, very new and we're like, okay, well, if it goes into cells, how is it that it's not necessarily uh, going into specific cell types? And I really wanted to address uh, those questions. I think the outcome of a lot of this work were uh, DNA nanostructures that open predictably in response to different targets and triggers. Um, I focused a lot on conditional delivery. To me, that was extremely interesting. Um, and this idea of like, if you have a cancer marker, then you will release your drug uh, of interest. Um, towards at the end of my studies, however, we started uh, hitting some major roadblocks associated to where these nanostructures get into cells and realizing that only a small percentage was able to reach our genetic materials that we have in our cells. And I think uh, at the end of my studies, this question was starting to nag at me more and more because that meant we had to produce large quantities of nanostructures, most of which would get degraded to have this small effect at the end. So um, what I wanted to do for my postdoc is kind of address this question more directly. And um, after a small like um, amount of work I did at the government, so I picked up a job in between. And we can talk about that if that's interesting. Uh, but I decided to go back and actually do a postdoc based on these motivations. Uh, what worked out for me was going to Northwestern in the Professor Chen Merkin's laboratory. Um, yeah, probably to all of you, it doesn't make a lot of, um, you probably don't resonate with the name, but Professor Chen Merkin is a pioneer in the development of bio uh, conjugates between nucleic acids and nanoparticle cores. These structures are called spherical nucleic acids, and they're basically multivalent DNA uh, spherical structures, which have been shown similar to what we've been doing with nanostructures to get into cells. And I think he had accomplished the most work in that regard in characterizing how to get into cells and which pathways and things like that. And what became evident is that they trigger a receptor in the cell membrane called the scavenger receptor A and get internalized through endosomes. And that's why they don't really meet our genetic material that much. And what the lab thought in the day was that's great, we'll do vaccines out of that. So you can elicit immune responses from these vesicles, but that limited all applications regarding gene therapy. And so what I did in his lab was change the chemistry and the nucleic acids on the surface uh, in the hopes of triggering different types of uh, receptors or engaging the membrane directly. So part of it's uh, published. I've worked on cationic oligonucleotides. And the other part is underway. I will hopefully publish it soon and also in collaboration with work that my group is doing. Uh, it's like seeing how these cationic oligonucleotides templated onto nanoparticles can now engage different types of receptors on demand, and we can program this through uh, alterations at the level of the backbone of DNA. So that's the phosphate linkages that you have between your bases. Um, and so we saw promising results in that front. Uh, that's basically the outcome of my postdoc. I also explored valency of binding a little bit more with uh, students in that group. 
Um, and I guess what led me to become a PI is probably also something you don't know, but the lab that I was at at Northwestern is gigantic. We were uh, usually between 50 and 70 people. And over time there is initially brought up to just mentor students and ultimately leading a full subgroup of 20 people uh, on biology questions, uh, development of uh, spherical nucleic acids for different applications. And I really um, liked that aspect. So I've always been a big fan of working in the lab, but also working alongside people who are just as motivated uh, to do well and get their projects moving forward uh, became a calling for me. And I decided to apply to be a prof so I could do that professionally. Um, so yeah, that was my third year postdoc. I applied here. I was probably the luckiest applicant of 2020. I got to interview in person before the shutdown. Uh, that is the first and last time I saw McMaster, as a lot of you remember <laughs> how it was. Um, but yes, I was very lucky was, uh, to be successful and happy to come back home. There was also a big motivation on my front. It's like carry out this type of research, but in a setting in Canada. Um, yeah, so I've been here now for a year and a half, which is mostly characterized by pandemic and some of these challenges. Uh, but right now, I think we're three grad students, three undergraduate students, and exploring questions on um, cellular uptake of nanoscale nucleic acid structures. Um, I think that covers most of your question, and hopefully feel free to elaborate on anything that's of interest. Yeah, no, no, thank you. That was that was really interesting. And I have so many follow-up questions, actually. But I'm actually going to start with something you said at the end before we go a little bit back into your career. How did you feel being in a lab of like, like of, of that size, like like 50 to 70? You said. I mean, I always pictured that huge labs are maybe like in their 30s, but but that, I mean that, that that's that, that's that's a huge number. Um, yeah, I thought it was really fun. Um, so my PhD group was usually 15 to 25, so it's fairly sizable to begin with, but we weren't in the same space. When you <laughs> go past that in the lab of Professor Merkins, actually over two floors, and has facilities across different buildings even. Um, so that to sustain a lab this size means you also have a lot of infrastructure and options regarding funding, because otherwise <laughs> you would not be able to get this many um, staff members and students all at once. So to me, that uh, resulted really in having, yes, lots of options regarding how I want to go about my research. And I was always surrounded by people who were experts at fields I was trying to learn more about. Uh, for example, I think while I was there, postdocs, we were always between like 10 and 15. So those are people that have PhDs and disciplines that are either close or far to mine, but usually that meant, oh, I'm having an issue. Oh maybe that postdoc would know or that grad student who's had a project on this front. So once you overcome figuring out who's who and who does what when, uh, it's just a very rich environment to talk about science and people who have motivations that will be close to yours. And it was just very productive in that sense. Uh, I really enjoyed having also uh, fellow postdocs who were going through similar phases as me, like asking themselves about their career path and like what they wanted to do next. And having this community around me was also um, very, very fun. So yeah, big labs can be fun, of course. It generally means you're more independent. The PI does not have time to allocate to you every week. Uh, so we could go a month or two without directly discussing my research with my PI. Like we'd say hi, but like when you're uh, managing 50 or more students, I think a suite of staff like about eight people. He had also a nanotechnology organization under his name. 
infrastructure over multiple rooms. Like there's definitely teaching and giving talks, right? So the PI is really, really busy. So it's an environment that's perfect if you want to pursue your own ideas, are willing to put the extra step towards mentoring and helping others. And then as a result, you get lots of power and freedom over what you do and a community of like scientists that are interested in topics just like you. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think it's cool to hear about like the different types of labs and their sizes and how their dynamics are. Um, <laughs> I actually wanted to ask you a question about something you mentioned earlier about um, taking a job with the government during that gap year. So what was your experience like there and what kind of research or work did you do? Uh, yes, so I picked up a job at the end of my PhD because I had always seen myself in service, giving back to community. So to me, government and having a mandate that's given by society was super interesting. Um, just lucky when I was writing my thesis, a job advertisement came up from Agriculture Canada looking at nanotechnology in the context of food science. And I was like, oh, that's great. <laughs> I'm going to love this. And uh, the PI, yes, she was a, a nanotechnology expert and I got to be hired as a cohort of two. So with along with another uh, postdoc who was also from McGill and I knew uh, a little bit. So that was a fun uh, group to be a part of. I got to explore uh, like natural products found in uh, fruits, for example, and our properties and how we could uh, reutilize these byproducts, such as like peels, you know, and make them into usable products. It's like the idea of using waste materials from the food industry and reconvert them as uh, either nano or micro technologies for food conservation. So I thought that was fun. It was a short term contract in my case, about five months. Um, I thought it was like very enlightening. I made great connections uh, there and actually thoroughly enjoyed uh, the work I did. I think the one drawbacks I found is the rhythm, uh, government, the funding and the um, infrastructure in place. It was not exactly what I was used uh, in my PhD. I enjoyed working a little bit of a faster pace and having a bit more freedom over what I'm doing. Uh, when you work from a mandate that's given to you, you have to execute the tasks as they are laid out. And I find that while it was satisfactory, while I was learning new stuff, I figured that if I continued in that direction, it might not be as, I preferred to retain a bit more control over what I did every day. And so that uh, contributed to motivating me to going the postdoc route. The other thing is applying into government can be a fairly long process. So sometimes there are openings, sometimes there are not. And they may or may not acknowledge the degrees you're at. So while I was there, the highest, <laughs> Uh, degree job I found required only a technical degree. Um, so that meant more doing work uh, as per a set of instructions, and that was probably not a good match for me at the time. So a uh, great option, but uh, yeah, in my case, I re realized that I really liked choosing what I'm doing. And I figured at the point I was at, the position that I had opened in the Merkin group was actually looking for somebody like me to join their group. So experience in DNA uh, synthesis assembly, also willingness to mentor and train a new generation of students. And I was like, oh, I think that would be a better match. And I went that direction. Well, that sounds amazing. So I guess those were your motivations for wanting to be in academia. And that's how you, I guess you started on that route. And then I guess now we have you here at Mac. And, that, and, that, yeah. and that's great. Um, I want to ask you, so, so earliest phase in your career, what made you 
pick like like even i guess like that version of an undergrad thesis like in a nucleic acid laboratory were you ever interested in anything else or um was it just that this was like an innovative cool kind of like new uh, area of research yeah a bit of both mm -hmm. i think what's important to know about me is i don't come from a scientific family at all um so everyone in my family is like public service law enforcement so I didn't have a much bias into any field one or another, but I had done science fairs. Everything was um, uh, funded usually by Merck Frost. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a great company, like scientists doing medicinal chemistry. So initially my interest was in that direction. Uh, sadly, I think about a year into my bachelor's, Merck Frost closed <laughs> in Montreal. And so uh, at that point, I was just really uh, reconsidering what I would be doing, because I think a lot of the med and biomed uh, tech industries in Montreal were undergoing a phase of massive uh, closing or repurposing towards like developing new products as startups. So, uh, so I became a bit more open-minded to what else was going on. Um, in classes, I was always more interested in uh, chemistry, organic chemistry, uh, chemical bio, although in the days it was very nascent so we'd call that like biochemistry but then when I would check out the classes in biochemistry that was not what I meant so it's like trying to bridge and get my classes aligned in that direction where we do biomolecule synthesis but I really didn't care about protein expression um I mean on a biological sense. I like it when it's the outcome, but I knew I didn't want to study that specifically. It's hard to explain. But anyway, so I took up like, yeah, all sorts of classes like physiology, pharmacology, and as well as everything that is biomolecule synthesis oriented, organic chemistry, uh, and kind of looked at who was working on that in the department. Among them, there's Professor Slayman. Um, it gives a bit more on the green chemistry, physical chemistry side. So there weren't so many PIs exploring these questions, but uh, when she presented her uh, DNA synthesis strategies and assemblies, I found like to me that would be a great match. Um, I also initially worked with Professor Barrett on azobenzene switches uh, as part of my undergrad thesis. So it was a co-supervised project, which I think uh, Professor Simon was uh, very keen on having me work on DNA switches. So I spent most of my thesis work in her lab with a little bit of uh, light uh, photo switching uh, performed in the other uh, group of Professor Barrett. Yeah, I think from there, my project took off. It was great. I was getting along super well with my uh, mentor. I had opportunities for funding since I stayed at the same university. So I think by the time I had completed my thesis, I had also applied for grad funding and I eventually got it. So to me, it was just a package deal where I get to continue studying something I'm interested in. I had a great living situation. Uh, Montreal is easy usually as a student, it's fairly cheap, uh, nice city, lots of options to go out. And I could stay close enough to my family that it wasn't too much of a <laughs> like big shock. So I, I guess it all made sense. Um, the harder parts were more uh, later on when I, I didn't necessarily think about it too much, but then three years in, you're like, okay, it's like, do I stop or do I continue? And I think that's usually the harder point to get through, I would say, at least it was for me. Yeah, thank you for sharing. It's really interesting to hear about um, kind of like what drives people to go into their specific fields and like what excites them about it. Um, so I guess like on the topic of 
nucleic acids and nanotechnology. What exactly are nucleic acid nanotechnology for people who may not know about it, people who haven't heard about this area of research before, and what directions do you think the field is heading? Yeah, um, yeah, that makes sense. So initially the field was called DNA nanotechnology since we use DNA as a molecule and we would use its programmable base pairing alphabet. So that's the Watson and Crick base pairing, A goes with T, C goes with G. And we would just synthesize sequences that be complementary to one another, but that would assemble in patterns that are a bit more intricate than just a linear duplex. So it's like incorporating branching structures and uh, that allowed everyone to start making 2D flat structures on surfaces that could be imaged by microscopy. And a pioneer of the field, so that's Professor Ned Seaman from NYU. Uh, sadly, he's uh, died, I think, this year or earlier. Um, his idea was to use DNA to build programmable crystals. So it's like to go to the third dimension. And then he started building junctions and uh, different types of DNA patterns that would assemble now into um, layered like 2D crystals that had now a 3D configuration that would allow them to pack onto one another. And eventually also uh, smaller prismatic structures that were well-defined. So his lab's really credited for bringing this idea that the molecular base pairing of alphabet can be used to program materials assembly. So taking DNA out of the biology context and into more of a materials field, something you use as a tool to get to your uh, goal. Uh, so yeah, so initially that was DNA nanotechnology that expanded my PI at McGill, Professor Slayman, she's well known for incorporating synthetic molecules within these scaffolds and what is called supramolecular DNA assembly. So we have now two base pair, like two alphabets for programming structure, the base pairing one of DNA, and you can use, for example, hydrophobic uh, interactions to now bring in also uh, mice cells and further assemblies based on these two orthogonal um, assembly codes. Um, so we were kind of like seeing now how incorporating chemistry, more function, new patterns could give us more control over structure. And that was great. But I think in the days we were starting to ask ourselves, what can we do with this? So now the field is also, in addition to expanding the possibilities of what you can do with uh, DNA and other types of nucleic acids. So these include RNA, as well as everything else that you can derive from the original structure of DNA and RNA and seeing how we can now apply this. So there's been an implication, I think, in uh, molecular computing, incorporating different types of bits. Um, so these are more a little bit materials. I was more interested in the bio, it's like biomolecule, let's bring it back into biology, but using now a human programmed structure. Uh, I think a lot of the field now is expanding into making also conjugates. Um, and trying to see how we can harness uh, this power that we have over structure to start asking questions. What is the impact of structure on functions? So a lot of our uh, biology operates at the nanoscale, but we have always lacked the tools to interrogate that specifically uh, because every element that we've been making at the nanoscales like polymers or quantum dots, like you don't have as much control over structure, right? So you can make, um, vesicle of a specific size, but you cannot necessarily control how many sites are decorated on the surface, their relationship to one another. So uh, DNA nanotechnology has also been very interesting in that regard. Um, precisely incorporating functional groups and now trying to see, okay, how well do they pair in this context or how can that affect a specific uh, interaction that you would um, be interested in studying? 
So sort of in relation to that, like what, what are some of the, 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 the drawbacks of like DNA nanotechnology in comparison to um, say, say, cause I know you, you kind of uh, like, like covered gene therapy and like the, like the limitation that it has because it has like limited nuclear delivery, but how about like for the delivery of like things to endosomes and like like bypassing the membrane? Like um, I know nanoparticles are an existing technology. Like like lipid nanoparticles are one that, that, that that's, that's that's being looked into right now. Um, what would you say like uh, the the drawbacks of using DNA are like like for this for this purpose? Yeah, um, I think most people in my field distinguish ourselves from uh, people developing nucleic acid therapeutics. Um, so nucleic acid therapeutics is still viewed as small molecules or like more classical medicinal chemistry type of work, where um, if you develop one molecule that's a great substrate for an enzyme, then you'll try to see which function groups accommodate better and increase like the affinity for the binding site in your enzyme. Well, nucleic acid therapeutics design is the same. Uh, you want in that regards, like the molecular structure of your oligonucleotide that affects the gene uh, knockdown or activation is what you're going to be interested in. Everything that promotes uh, enhanced stability, enhanced potency, and you'll usually play on the design of the uh, sugar scaffold, the phosphate linkage, uh, sometimes the base, although that's more rare, and really try to engineer this oligonucleotide such that it has a potent effect for long duration. It's specific to your gene of interest, does not trigger an immune response. So it's very much like structure then function as a drug. Uh, in my field, it's more materials oriented. So we take those um, nucleic acid therapeutics because we can readily work with them. We can synthesize a lot of them as well, but we're not as interested in their molecular structure, but rather on their orientation and how we can deliver them better. And I think we both are interested in this same challenge is that um, cellular uptake is difficult to achieve. What we're finding with nanoscale objects is we do promote enhanced uptake. The nanoscale uh, architecture plays a big role in dictating where your material will end up. And so we think that with combining kind of like interests of the two fields together, uh, we could maybe arrive at something interesting. Uh, drawback in general in my field is that we operate at a very small scale. Uh, biomolecule synthesis is automated, but when I synthesize in my group, we operate at the micromole scale. So meaning we regularly have nanomoles of material. And that's probably uh, one distinguishing factor from uh, medicinal chemistry in a more classical sense. And we really have to track minute amounts of materials all the time. So sort of, sort of to follow up on what you said, um, what projects uh, like are you focusing on your lab, like, like in your lab right now? Like what, what, what are your graduate students studying? Um, currently, we're really interested in the scope of modifications that's called uh, backbone modifications. And that really specifically in our case, we're targeting phosphate backbone modification, so not much on the sugar. Um, we're revisiting some uh, publications that were um, reported early in, in the early days of the field when synthesizing oligos and looking at how we can modify them. And they've been applied to make therapeutics. But oftentimes there is this interplay when you design a therapeutics that something might enhance its uptake, but it will be detrimental to its activity. And we're trying to decouple uh, the two. So using the scaffold to do uptake and having the drug be uh, at its most potent state. Um, now what we're uh, doing is yes, so modifying the phosphate, incorporating that onto structures, trying to develop syntheses that can go beyond uh, 10 or 20 modifications to now think of like, 
larger scaffold objects, maybe incorporating up to 100 modifications would be a great goal, although that's really difficult. Uh, but yes, yeah, so a new chemistry for new backbone properties and uh, hopefully improving uh, drug delivery. Now, what I didn't say is when you do oligonucleotide synthesis, this is an iterative process automated on a machine. Uh, for the synthesis to be successful, you need every step to have about 99.9% .9 yield for your, uh, while well, we are okay with 99.2 or 3, but you get the idea. If you want to make 100 mer, uh, you need the yields to be significantly above that 99% uh, threshold in order to have a significant yield at the end, since you're coupling from the result of the previous step. So you have to perform at every uh, addition of a base is four reactions and then 100 times. So you need 400 reactions to be completely successful for you to isolate the product you're looking for. So it's really critically important that the chemistry we develop becomes extremely effective. And a lot of this work in the early days did not need to be as stringent. So we're exploring that a little bit um, and trying to see how now placement at a nanoscale can influence uh, uptake properties. Uh, in this case, that would also limit the requirements for chemistry if we learn that if all of the modifications being on one side of your nanostructure is sufficient, then that will significantly decrease the workload associated with engineering these structures. Um, yeah, I guess I went a bit technical on this one. That's terrible. I'm sorry. Uh, but uh, yes, basically chemistry, backbone modifications. Second one is uh, going another uh, route towards a similar goal is doing bioconjugates with molecules that already exist that have the properties we're looking for and trying to see how these conjugates um, behave when they're placed in the presence of DNA-based structures. And uh, yeah, all of this is really to uh, develop better nanoscale structures for drug delivery, hopefully for nucleic acid therapeutics. Very cool. Those are all really, really interesting research <laughs> projects. Um, I was actually wondering, so how are you able to optimize these DNA, like nanostructures and scaffolds and anything, so they are specific to certain cell types, and so they can only be taken up by those cells of interest? And is that something that you're focusing on in your current research? Uh, yes, we're trying to learn more about uh, cell membranes, what they're composed of. I mean, the obvious... Um, Properties of cell membranes right now is like they're lipid-based, they're hydrophobic, whereas DNA is negatively charged and hydrophilic. So we're trying to bridge this gap so that we have a more favorable interaction at this level. Among them, that includes incorporating more hydrophobic characters onto our structures and more cationic charge so that now we have uh, attractive interaction at the cell membrane and an increased likelihood of getting uptake. Uh, at the cell membrane level. So that would open the door to any cell type of interest. You would cross the membrane directly. So that's like our brute force approach to get things in the cells. We are also trying to see if we can get a bit more specific. Uh, among the strategies we're looking at is using peptides that are specific for different subtypes, conjugating them. Uh, now that seems probably really obvious, but a lot of the cell penetrating peptides um, conjugating them onto DNA, the chemistry is accessible. And so this actually works, but uh, DNA is negatively charged. Those cell penetrating peptides are cationic. That means that oftentimes we get intermolecular type of interactions that dominate over interactions with cells. So we're also looking at strategies to overcome uh, that as well. 
uh, that's been uh, one of the bigger focus we're developing now, uh, novel scaffolds where we can have the cationic end be fully responsive to its environment and our DNA scaffold that also uh, remains intact and not interfering in way of <laughs> those interactions. Yeah, um, no, thank you. Thank you for that description. Um, I kind of wanted to move on to um, a different topic and kind of ask a little bit more about your lab, um, but in the sense of an, like, like an undergrad's perspective. So what's, what's the typical role of an undergrad um, who comes to your lab to do research and what kind of projects have undergrads worked on in the past when they were for you? Uh, yes, I've had so far mostly uh, third and fourth year students for thesis where I had one co-op student as well. Um, what I like to do, and it probably stems from being in big groups, is to give everyone like a project and a goal, but that's still fairly uh, open so that you can kind of choose your path to get there. Uh, projects in my group tend to focus in two areas. So either you're more focused on the backbone chemistry and seeing the impact of the resulting oligonucleotide, or we're looking at conjugates and uh, hopefully bringing that into cells and also seeing how they impact uh, cellular uptake. So it's like a little bit more chemistry oriented and it's a little bit more uh, structure activity type projects. Uh, undergraduates in my group so far have done uh, protein DNA conjugation. So I think two students have done that, looking at um, how this external charge that we program on the surface of a protein affects its cellular uptake. And that's for uh, protein delivery applications. Um, so that one, yeah, two people have worked on that and is currently an undergraduate-led uh, project. So I'm hoping uh, that will be some a project that keeps going through contribution of undergraduate students uh, with mentorship from me and the other grad students in the group. But because this project takes on uh, from the expertise of the students in my group and it's still conceptually uh, accessible. I find it's been a great match so far. Um, the other projects have been more in like, yeah, assessments of these uh, modifications. So we have collaborations with the ruler group uh, looking into that. Uh, so how do we see like the impact that our modifications are doing? So synthesizing is one goal. Uh, the other one's like, okay, how do we measure? So there's different types of techniques that can be used to do that. Um, and I think, yeah, those were the main projects. I mean, the first year, I also had two undergraduate students in developing backbone modifications with me when I was setting up my lab and developing all of the conjugate chemistry as well. Uh, these two students are now uh, continuing with me as grad students, but they were initially uh, doing that as their thesis work. Yeah, so um, I guess more on this topic as well. What do you look for um, in applicants to your lab? And what are you, I guess, what do you use to screen between different applicants? Oh, uh, <laughs> I guess in the first year, you're not really well known, right? So uh, usually I, um, I'm usually really, really impressed by people who actually know me because that shows a level of motivation towards uh, the topic. Um, uh, so yeah, I usually screen mostly by that, like motivation and do you have like some chemistry background that we can start from. Uh, biomolecule synthesis is not the first thing you learn. So that's why I'm usually more interested in taking on students, maybe third and fourth year, uh, who have taken uh, some organic chemistry courses. Uh, probably the more the better, but it's not a strict requirement. Um, but yeah, no, I'm usually looking for, yeah, motivation, um, interest in, uh, learning to work independently. 
uh, in and also a level of flexibility. So we are a starting group. I know it's a foreign concept, but that means that like I'm the most senior person in my group. So I need to be comfortable with some situations where I don't know. <laughs> and there's not many other people to figure it out. So we need to like sit together, find a strategy and get to it. Uh, we're also uh, installing a lot of the infrastructure. We're waiting for equipment. So a lot of the work sometimes revolves around how are we going to get this done? And the pandemic has imposed also a few challenges around that. So yeah, I would say motivation, a level of flexibility, um, interest in the field. Uh, it's usually what I look for uh, the most. Um, yeah, I guess I'll have to become a little bit more <laughs> selective now, but initially it was fairly easy uh, to realize that, oh, it's like, I want to do DNA stuff. Like my name's obviously going to pop up, uh, but now I started teaching a new generation. So I'll probably have to communicate that a little bit better. Yeah, and kind of the last question that, that we wanted to ask, um, what advice, and, and you touched upon this a little bit, but what advice do you have for undergrads who are interested in getting involved in, in, in research and a career in research or in academia? Oh, um, <laughs> That's a good one. Um, yeah, I'd say like follow your interests and like um, be assertive, right? Don't be afraid to try new things. There's something as supervisors that we're always looking for. It's like we're really interested in uh, hiring students that can take direction from us, but that are also uh, able to develop their own ideas and find ways to test them. Um, so I find that, yes, a good combo of like uh, motivation, expressing your interest and uh, not giving up. There are some hurdles to transferring from undergrad type courses where like if you study hard, you usually get a good grade. In science, the biggest barrier I find is like oftentimes you're, you can be an A student, but your research is most likely going to fail, especially at the beginning. So overcoming uh, this mindset is probably um, where it's important, like, just don't give up. It's normal. It happens. Um, but like the most important point is like trying to ask yourself, what have you learned from this not working and how can you take it in the next step such that you either learn something or you make it work. And the process can sometimes takes years, right? You try something, it fails, but at least if you learn something from it, the next time you try, you might be closer to your goal. Um, so, uh, yeah. I'm not finding the right word right now, but it's really this persistence, yeah, persistence um, and not giving up. Thank you, that's really great advice. <laughs> um, so I guess that wraps it up for today. We just want to say thank you again for um, meeting with us and telling us more about your research in your lab. It was really nice to meet you and to hear more about the work that you do. Oh, but well, thanks for having me. That was an honor. <laughs>